begin with a word of prayer. We are so amazed, Father, at at the way that you, you work in front of the curtain and behind the curtain to, to bless us as sinful as we are and as rebellious and as hard-headed and obstinate as we are at times. You bless us. And what joy comes into our life when we sing and, and when we, we praise You. And when we pray to You, Father, and, and press our mind and hearts into Your Word in such a way that those words become the way that we think about life and the way that we respond, the way that we react. We pray to do this in even more profound and significant ways in our life, Father, as You continue to guide our steps in this life. For more than anything else, we want to be light and we want to be salt in this community in in such a way that people can see the, the beauty of Your presence in our life. That there is a, a great graciousness and a, a great beauty that has come into our life, Father, because You are gracious and You are beautiful. And through Your own power, have not just strengthened us, Father, but changed us. It's our prayer, Father, that You will use our church to, to be that light in dark places in this community. Not just in our city, but, but around the world. That You will embolden us, Father, to be generous and to step out in faith and to speak and to do in ways, Father, that, that we see Jesus Himself in Scripture doing. And as we think about the church and the way that we rely on each other, we pray, Father, that as we look at this text, that You will give us eyes that see and ears to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I was out at uh, McAllister Park in a large field allowing the, uh, the German shepherd to run to her heart's desire when I realized that I had made a dreadful mistake in my choice of shoes. In my haste uh, to get the dog out of the house and to get her to the park, I had slipped on a pair of Crocs, normally a very comfortable shoe, but not so great when you're out walking the dog and realize that you have walked into a veritable minefield of stickers and burrs and thorns. The croc shoe was designed to repel water, but is really no defense to thorns. In fact, when you look at the bottom of it, you, it, it makes the perfect pincushion. And as I looked at the thorns uh, that were in the bottom of that shoe and, and, and the thorns and the burrs and the thistles and all over the place uh, that were around me, a thought came over me that there was a time when there was no such thing as a thorn or a thistle or a sticker or a burr in the world. No such thing. It wasn't around. But then there was a day when man introduced sin into the world and it wasn't just a single act of rebellion against God, but a force that assaults the goodness of God's creation was brought into the world. And that's what we read in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Now this is actually sort of in the middle of where God is responding to, to Satan and to the woman and to the man because of the eating of the forbidden, forbidden fruit. And we pick up where he's speaking to Adam. And he says, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Interesting. No thorns or thistles. And then thorn and thistles. They appear. They appear. They show up overnight like graffiti on a wall that just a few hours earlier had been freshly painted and was blank. And thinking about that, I'm reminded of this quote from Cornelius Plantiga in a book he wrote about sin back in the 1990s. Uh, The quote is, Sin offends God not only because it bereaves or assaults God directly, as in impiety or blasphemy, but also because it bereaves and assaults what God has made. Shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to, to their architect and builder. Basically what Plantiga is saying, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, sin is not just this, this, this act that stays confined to, to the actions that can be defined as a rebellion or an act against God's will. But the thing that is behind that act, the force, the will, the volition that is behind that actually unleashes an even greater force into creation that acts like vandalism against it. It mars and defaces and devastates it. Thorns, in a manner of speaking, just vandalism against the goodness of God's creation. And they remind us that there is a force in this world that attempts to do more than just deface the earth. It tries to wreck the world. And that same force is also a threat to the church and a particular slice of the church called fellowship. Back in the early years of of World War II, before the United States got involved into it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a little book called Life Together that was written to help protect and nurture the fellowship of the church. And in a little section entitled, Not not an Ideal, but a Divine Reality, he writes about the problem of thinking that the church is going to be this perfect environment made up by perfect people until you hit the reality that it's not. And he says, only that fellowship which faces such a disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping the illusion that everything's just going to be perfect, everything's hunky-dory, when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. True. Christian fellowship must be protected because of the forces that work against it. Because of the thorns and thistles that we, even to this day, introduce into fellowship, sometimes wittingly, sometimes unwittingly. But the Christian fellowship must be protected because of the forces that work against it. Which takes us to this Luke that Mark read for us, uh, this text in Luke chapter 17, where there are concerns for fellowship. Now the context of of what Mark read is, you know, we're going towards the end of Jesus' ministry and we're getting to that place where he's, he's turning 
the trajectory of his ministry towards Jerusalem and the cross and, and his crucifixion. He is with his disciples. He is taking time out on a regular basis to teach them and to instruct them and to help them to understand more deeply what the kingdom of God is all about and what their relationships are all about. He has spent nearly three years with these men. He is taking time to teach about the kingdom of God because he knows just how fragile that community of faith can be, a community of disciples can be. From time to time, they're going to argue over what? Who is the greatest among them? One of their number is going to betray him. And at one point, they're all going to be scattered into the night and he himself is going to be left alone to face his persecutors. But he's not there yet. And neither are they. And so he takes opportunity to teach about the nature of their fellowship with one another. What it means for them to be in community. To be a church with each other. And the first thing he does is to talk about two problems. Problem number one, the person who introduces sin into that group. Notice what he says in verse 1. Things that cause people to stumble are what? Bound. They're bound to come. Things that cause people to stumble are inevitable. They are going to come. That word stumble, by the way, is the word scandalon. And it's probably there to, meant to refer to those actions that will lead somebody to defect from the church or to leave the church. Now, think for just a moment. He's, he's just given kind of a, uh, an open-ended statement. I, I mean, the things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. You should know that. It's kind of open-ended. He doesn't get into details. But take a moment just to think about all of the different ways that somebody might, some sin might lead to somebody's departure, somebody's moving away from fellowship, that fellowship being broken, that shalom, that peace between brothers and sisters in Christ being broken. How about an unresolved disagreement? Or the kinds of things that in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talks about the, the, the useless a uh, vain, futile word, depending on the translation you use. A, a word that there's no thought behind it that you just say, it might break somebody's heart and you never know it. Or the ethnic issues that might arise in the church that Paul addressed over and over again between, you know, you know, between Jews and Gentiles and, and between male and female, the biases and the prejudices that seem to be part and parcel of human beings being brought into the church and, and not being redeemed and not being, not being worked over by the Spirit. There's pride and, and arrogance. There's pride and arrogance that at times you know, tosses, tosses people aside and treats them with disdain. And then there's that problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where somebody is being very uh, uh, scandalized. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling with their thoughts because they see a brother or they see a sister eating meat that is, that is sacrificed to idols. And, and Paul is going to say, you know what? The guy that's eating that meat, we know that there's nothing behind the idol. Theologically and doctrinally, he's okay. But you know what? There are people who think that you can't do that. And so to do that in front of them and cause that person to stumble is a sin. Don't allow what you eat because you're more than what you eat. Don't allow the gospel to be, to be broken up and fragmented because of that kind of action. Because Jesus said that anyone who causes any of these little ones, and He's talking about people, the things that cause people to sin, He says in verse 1, later on, a couple of verses later, He's talking about these little ones. I think He's talking about people, brothers and sisters. He says anyone who causes someone else to sin in the church is in a bad spot. It would be better for a millstone hung around His neck. And that's why He says in verse 3, you have to watch your life. 
You have to watch your life. How you live. Don't be one of those people that lead other people of weakness in, into a, a place where, where their faith is defaced and damaged and devastated in such a way that, that they're not able to, to connect and to engage in proper ways spiritually. Jesus says, watch yourself. Don't be the kind of person that leads someone to a place of weakness. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is going to say, you don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for, what's that word, church? Building. Building others up. Instead of being a stumbling block, instead of being a scandalon, a scandalizing figure in the church, you're the kind of person that builds others up according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. Paul will write to the church in Thessalonica, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So one danger, one problem to the fellowship of the church is the person that's going to introduce sin into somebody's life. It's going to bring sin into the church. Problem number two is the person who has sinned against. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. He says in verses 3 and 4, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Another way that the fellowship of a church is compromised is through unforgiveness. Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. And when they do, what is Jesus' instruction? Forgive. And then Jesus goes on to describe the harshest relationship that those disciples could imagine. What Jesus begins to do is to talk about somebody. Here, think about this guy that you meet every day in the hallways of the office or somebody in your neighborhood, somebody at school, somebody at work, somebody at the grocery store that you have contact, significant contact with seven times during a day. And every time you're with that person, they do something that upsets you. They sin against you seven times. Now, when you think about it, that's, that's really kind of a harsh relationship. I mean, you think about all of the people that you run into in, 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 in the 24 hours of a day. Very rarely do you run into somebody seven times in a day that allows them the opportunity to sin against you seven times. What Jesus is talking about, I think, is something really, really rare. And again, the number seven is not specific. It's, it's a representative number of, of, of whatever it takes However number of times he sins against you, you are to forgive him. And then he describes the harshest person. Even if he comes back seven times, you forgive him. And as much as we are owed the satisfaction, we think that we're owed the satisfaction of a grudge, and we want to chew on our victimization, bad situation, we deserve to feel this way, you know, we begin to think about that person having a bad life and even at sometimes praying for that person to have a bad life. Forgiveness is not an option. It is a command of God. You know, it's pretty easy sometimes to see the way that a, a fellowship can be fragmented by the person who's going to introduce some kind of sin and cause people to stumble. He does something that upsets people. He says something that upsets people. It's easy to see that. But the flip side of that is that sometimes the person that caused the fragmentation and the untethering of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the fabric of the fellowship, the integrity of the fellowship, is the person who has sinned against not responding in ways that Jesus has prescribed here. Of allowing unforgiveness to become a way of relating to other people. And as you relate to people in an unforgiveness kind of way, 
what happens is that there will always be walls. There will always be, there will always be obstacles. There will always be something, some veil, some curtain, standing in the way of you being able to have complete fellowship with that person and hampered in the ways that you minister to them and allow them to minister to you. And the funny thing about this is the disciples get this. They go, you, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a hard thing that you're saying there, uh, Jesus, about the person that introduces sin in such a way that he causes these people to sin and it's better for him to have a millstone and him dropped in the middle of, a, of the sea. What a tough thing. But then to forgive even the harshest relationships in our life, they get the difficulty, the degree of difficulty that Jesus is talking about disciples living and, and interacting with each other in fellowship in the church in such a way that they, they understand that challenge. And what is it that they say? Increase our faith. <laughs> it takes faith to live the right way in community. The disciples get the degree of difficulty in living in this kind of community that will weather the ups and downs of life. And their response is, you know what, we need bigger faith. We need bigger faith in order to live a, a, a more discipled life and we need, we need more faith in order to forgive people the way that you're describing it. Our faith quotient needs to be increased. Now on the practical side, you know, when is the last time you prayed to God, you asked God to increase your faith as it pertains to living faithfully in fellowship with other people? Then when it comes to, to interacting with people here at Mac or, or in, in, you know, in, in, in our small circle of friends, that we pray for an increased faith, that we might live more faithfully and with a deeper, more profound, significant faith when it comes to interacting with each other than we've ever done before. Now, we pray for an increased faith when there's adversity and there's trouble in the water. And there's some kind of a crisis or there's, there's something that's coming down the pike that doesn't look like it's going to be very easy to overcome or to go through. And there's going to be no escape from it. You know, we, we pray for an increased faith. We pray for protection. We pray for God's presence and those kinds of things. But when is the last time we really prayed personally that God will be a part of our day-to-day -day interaction with brothers and sisters? Increase our faith. And Jesus hears it and He responds and He says, Faith and servanthood. Faith and servanthood. First, he talks about the faith. He says, you know, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, not really a mulberry tree, it's a different kind of a tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Now that word if is, is kind of interesting. The, the word if identifies it as a conditional sentence. In the original language, there are only two kinds of conditional sentences. There's the contrary to fact condition, that if I were you, but I'm not, kind of condition. It's contrary to fact. If I were you, but I'm not. And then there's the kind that's according to fact. If Jesus is Lord, and He is, then dot, dot, dot. He's using that second one. If you have faith, and you do, and even if it is so small, it's as small as a mustard seed. Great things can still happen. It can grow and it can grow and it can grow and it can say to this tree, not a mulberry, but a mulkine tree. Another tree is a different kind of a tree that's indigenous to Israel, grows up to be about 35 feet in height, grows and, and, and attaches itself to rock. You can, even if you have faith like a mustard seed, say to a tree like that, be uprooted and tossed into the sea. Not just uprooted, but tossed into the sea. Your faith can, if it's growing, do tremendous things in your life. 
But then he talks about servanthood and the servant heart. He says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, you sit down and eat. Won't he rather say, you prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? The answer is no. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Now what Jesus is is saying is that it takes a, a special kind of a heart to be able to to, to, to be able to, to fulfill these kinds of things in the community, it takes a great amount of faith. It takes somebody that's growing in their faith. Somebody whose faith is increasing because faith is one of the ways that you get there. Faith can do astounding things. Faith is one of the ways that, that, that interaction and fellowship inside of the church can be successful as we are growing faithfully to God. But it also takes a servant heart. It takes, it takes us understanding that this kind of life where we forgive other people and, and our, 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 our relationship with each other is, is based on taking care of one another and relating to one another and doing what is best for each other and building up one another. What, that is what servants do. That, that's the normal thing. It's nothing heroic. It's not beyond the call of duty. What Jesus is describing here is what servants normally do. When a servant comes in from the field, you don't say, hey, it's time for you to eat. No, you say, no, it's, you go ahead and serve me, and then you can eat. And after he's done everything that he was told to do, that he's paid to do, that he's required to do, that's just natural for him as a servant to do, is he to be thanked? No, why? Because it's just the natural way that a servant responds and lives and acts during the day. It's just part of his duty. It's what it means to be a servant. And so one of the things that I think that Jesus is driving home here is the fact that this this kind of living faithfully with one another and this forgiving one another just becomes kind of second nature because of the identity, the, the way that we look at ourselves and see ourselves and observe ourselves in the economy of God's kingdom. And it's the way that Jesus was. What did it take, what did it take for you to find reconciliation and to find that shalom and to find that peace with God. Did it not take a servant heart? Jesus Himself said later in Matthew's Gospel, He said, you know, I didn't come to be served, but I came to what, Sam? To, be ser- to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You know, it was just the way that Jesus saw Himself. It was, it was the way that I identified Himself. It was, he was identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God. But Jesus saw Himself as the ransom for our sins. He saw Himself moving day by day towards Jerusalem in a rendezvous, an appointment with the cross and the crucifixion and the betrayal and the mocking and the spitting and the blood and the pain and the suffering in order for forgiveness to take place. And it wasn't that it wasn't a struggle. I mean, in that Garden of Gethsemane, His faith is is seen so evidently in the fact that they are across the valley and on a a hill on the other side, on on the east side of Jerusalem. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
It's a closed-in area. They can see the, the soldiers coming and those that are coming to, to, to arrest Him. They can see them at a great distance because of the torches that they're carrying. And Jesus is praying. He's praying a, a, a prayer that is, that is so keenly painful and, and grievous that He is beginning to sweat drops of blood as He prays about the cup that He wants to be taken away from Him, but He trusts God. And He is obedient to God. And He is faithful to God in such a way that He says, My life is going to be shaped. And my life is going to be, is, is, is going to be fenced in by Your will. By obedience to Your will. Not my will, but Your will be done. And as we grow into conformity with Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, in His great act of bringing reconciliation of the world to Christ, uh, to, to God, and we begin to emulate that, what we see as us growing closer together is we reconcile and we forgive and we grow in our understanding of what it means to be a holy, holy nation, chosen by God and blessed by Him. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there are some ways that we can minister to you, it might be that, that you want to put on Jesus in baptism tonight. Uh, Alyssa Weeks, one of our teenagers, 14-year-olds up on the fourth floor right now, after our assembly is going to come down and, and to be baptized for the remission of her sins. If you can stick around, they would love, the Weeks family would love for you to, be, to see that. And if you've never given your life to God in that way, you can join Alyssa in being baptized tonight, having your sins washed away. Or there might be some other needs that, that we can help you with. But we're going to have some shepherds, our spiritual leaders down here at the front. If there are some ways that we can share Christ with you or minister to you, we ask you to come down now as we stand and sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a fortune.